If stormtroopers drove Chevys and Jeeps, they turned to Fab Fours for their mods. Install one of these on your ride and it will turn average into aggressive. Believe me, the Fab Fours bumpers look the part. If you need an example, I submit this. One of their products is called the Grumper. It's a bolt-on, one-piece front grille and bumper design with flared arches and a gillbox that turn headlights into fierce eyes. The metal is painted matte black. It features strong, modern, polygonal styling. You pair it with a cowl that fits over a windshield, and it looks like your Jeep is ready for urban warfare anywhere in this galaxy or the next. Unsurprisingly, the main headline on their website is powered by innovation. It's a claim that has driven Greg to invest himself and his resources into creating a company that he proudly calls the Bentley of Bumpers. That's a grand claim, but having visited their manufacturing operation and spending some time with Greg talking about their future growth plans, I wouldn't argue that point with him. You know, as a kid, I loved art. So I was into just drawing, sketching all the time. And I loved vehicles. I don't even know where that came from because my dad wasn't into any of it but they made the mistake of getting me a go-kart when I was a little kid, and that was it. I love the smell of gas, I love driving. So it went from go-karts to dirt bikes to a Jeep, to a Jeep, to a Jeep, to a Jeep, to a Jeep. And from all of that, you know, I was just bit by the bug. I love customizing. Uh, there was a local welder to my house in Houston, and it was Clifford's Custom Welding. And the tagline on the front of his building was, if you can dream it, I can build it. And it's funny, I've never forgotten that. And I hope he's still doing well to this day because to me, seeing that sign was like, challenge accepted. I can dream up some crazy stuff. So you're telling me you can convert that to sheet metal? Let's see. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on invention, funding, entrepreneurship, growth, and so much more. You know, when we walked in, um, you know, we got introduced to Greg. Uh And immediately starting out, his energy just takes a hold and takes you for a ride, right? Yeah. It became clear to me quickly that here's Greg, here's his vision of, of his products, and then like... These three buildings are just his little playground for 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 him to in his busy mind. Yes, it's just his mind, but made visible to you. Um, and you know, we'll we'll probably touch on this a lot later on. What he has is he's also got hundreds of people totally bought in from a cultural standpoint on 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 what he wants to deliver to the consumer um he clearly understands what his brand's all about he's he's a classic brand 
uh, uh, innovator in that way. He 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 knew he knew what the market needed, what the vacuum was, and he just wanted to fill it. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I wasn't riding the same car as you guys when we came on site that morning. I was a little running a little behind, and I, I kind of just ran up behind everybody. You guys were already in the facility, and you know, I just see this younger guy. I'm like, oh, we must be just getting kind of like you know a general tour and getting welcomed by somebody. You walked us through the whole facility from start to finish, and then you know we're setting up equipment, and then he sits down. I was like. Oh, you're Greg. I just thought this was like, you know, a nice guy from like an employee. You are, you, you are Fat Force. <laughs> um, and so just to see somebody at, you know, just so innovation's not bound by an age or limitations other than what we dis- predispose ourselves to. Oh, yeah. And he, his story, he, he clearly doesn't see limitations in his life, right? I mean, he's traveled the world. He's, He's gone after different, or he's he's had different uh, uh, at bats, doing different things, designing things, making things. Relocated from Re- Texas, right? To I think he where like to the Jakarta or India or I don't know where he was, but <laughs> Malaysia, not Lancaster. No, he yes, <laughs> not where he is now. And and I mean, so his story is is a globe trotting swashbuckling thing that, again, we'll come back to later on. This is the first of three roofs, each 46,000 square feet, that make up the Fab Force facility. The other two, absolutely chocker blocked with manufacturing equipment and processing. So we are just like an episode of How It's Made. We bring raw materials in the front door and it is a fully packaged product out the back. Our primary products are bumpers for trucks and Jeeps in the automotive aftermarket. We've expanded that to other accessories, primarily fabricated sheet metal from steps, headache racks, but bread and butter, front and rear bumpers. Uh, Now we're leveraging our brand after so many years of building that customer loyalty into adjacent products. We're planning to be a disruptor in the suspension industry, and then we pair that with our own wheel and tire offering. So all of these things are bringing us into Fab Four's world where we can take your entire vehicle from stock to a transformed, completely Fab Four's outfitted vehicle. So there's been a lot of complexities over the years building the business, and all that was a means to an end to arrive at the point that we have now. Now I've had all the resources and means to take our innovation to a whole new level. Let's take a step back. Fab Four's wants to dominate the custom automotive aftermarket. But where did Greg get his start? So the first thing I designed was it would go into your receiver. The receiver is the hole on the back of your standard trailer hitch. Come out, bridge out, and have two big hooks. Actually, a bad design because the two hooks collapse on each other when I tried winching off a tree once. But it looked super cool, and you could wrap your chain around it. And so there you go. It was an $80 part. Next thing you know, I had a 98 Ram half ton and designed my first bumper. So I would say to this day, it was probably the first bumper in history that integrated fabricated sheet metal with a tube center. So it was just a look I thought would be cool. Had that in college, never thought that would ever turn into the business. But it did, and with unlikely beginnings. The foundation for this was in Jakarta, Indonesia. I actually took a job out of A&M with an oil company. I wanted to live in Perth, Australia, buy a little Toyota Hilux, go to the beach, had this vision. Got there, two weeks later, bait and switch, they sent me to Jakarta, Indonesia, which I could not have even told you where it was on the globe. I grew up in Texas, it could not be further apart. But I met an investor in a bar, 
told him I was writing a business plan to make my own off-road shop in the US. And his words, if you have the plan, I've got the money. So I slept on it and I called my folks and said, I'm gonna open a business here in Jakarta. Completely not the plan whatsoever. Led to tons of adventures. Ended up being a male model in Jakarta's, in the malls and on the TV and doing crazy adventures, the jungle challenges, the Sulawesi challenge, off-roading. Made a ton of friends, made very little money and learned a lot. Work our butts off trying to build an off-road shop in Jakarta. Super hard. I mean, for one, the language is Bahasa Indonesian, not English. And here we are in arguably the third most corrupt country on the planet, trying to promote a sport that didn't exist. The odds were stacked against us, but it was a whole lot of fun. You know, being in a third world country like that and just learning how to interact with my first employees taught me a whole lot about, you know, just what that means to be in the trenches, lead from the bottom. And uh, those experiences set us up for what would become the real Fab Fours, which is I was gonna import bumpers from Thailand to Jakarta. And through meeting that manufacturer, he had a world-class facility in Thailand. And I thought, man, you know, for me, I had a global perspective. So it wasn't so much about USA, USA. It's like, I think my generation's the first one to go, the world's not that big a place. You can get anywhere in a couple flights and, you know, zero prejudices, others like, hey, we're all better than any of us. I see, let's leverage that. And I could be my own bumper brand in the US leveraging that manufacturing. So that's when I shut down Jakarta, chose Durango, Colorado, because I thought it'd be a beautiful place to live, close to my off-roading passion near Utah, not too big. And that was a horrible decision as well, because my manufacturer in Thailand changed the deal at the last minute. I lost him as an option. And at that point, I was lucky enough that my family stepped in to help with some of that early investment. They believed in the idea. They saw our prototype bumpers and thought that with my passion, it was worth giving it a shot. At the time, uh, to build the brand, I had an enclosed trailer and I would just leave on long road trips, much to my wife's chagrin with our brand new baby. But I would just go out city to city, hit the yellow pages back then, and go shop to shop and say, hey, come out to my trailer, see my wares, and built the brand. Durango, we were growing, growing, went through three buildings there, and at that point decided that it would benefit me to move. We had to get out of there. Looked at a couple cities, and actually, Greater Charlotte made the radar because my parents had chosen to move there two years prior. My father had officially retired, they were out of Houston, and my mom got to pick where they were gonna live. And she wanted Four Seasons, so I didn't know much about Charlotte at all, and we made the leap of faith. I wanted to be closer to my father as a mentor to the business. You know, he had started his own business that had grown rapidly, and I knew he could bring a lot from his perspective. We actually landed moving down into the Lancaster area because it just made sense, get out of the Metroplex. I picked a cone because I like the south side of Charlotte, and Lancaster has worked out to be a phenomenal place for us. A lot of textiles exiting this area left behind massive low-cost buildings and a workforce eager to get back after something that they could get behind. Fab Four has answered both of those. We're in a phenomenal facility that we could buy at a fraction of the price you could in a major metroplex like a Dallas or something. And to have this level of workforce at our fingertips, eager to come to work and build a brand like ours, it's been a phenomenal place.
Jakarta, Indonesia, to Durango, Colorado, to Lancaster, South Carolina. Greg has had a journey, one of language barriers, partner deals, and business arrangements falling through, and many miles on the road attempting to sell his goods. Even as Greg faced these challenges, like many entrepreneurs, he clung to the idea behind Fab Fours. But in the end, his experiences and his uncompromising vision have helped to set the company apart from anything else on the market. The thing that probably makes a Fab Fours product better than the others, if you were to query some of the shops out there and the distribution that support us, goes back to our value proposition. Quality on time. It starts there. I will say, and the products behind me are evidence of our bold, creative thinking, but none of that would matter if it couldn't hold up. You know, a lot of companies have a big challenge in upholding their warranty. For me, on day one, I wanted to be bad at warranty by not having it. So if you produce a high quality part, you shouldn't have to be good at taking returns, at answering questions, at having disgruntled customers, having returns on credit cards. Just eliminate that as a concern. Easier said than done. I mean, there's a place in the market, no matter what business you're in. If you're talking purses, you've got something you can go pick up at Walmart and you got Louis Vuitton. There's a whole spectrum and there's expectations from the customer. I have always considered us the Louis Vuitton or the Bentley of bumpers. And as such, you know, it is a little bit easier to have a high quality part when you're also driving the highest price point. And that's been a blessing and a curse. For one, it does provide us a strong margin, but we also just open the door to competitors as we continue pushing higher price points off of our innovation and branding. It's very easy for the world to say, we're just like Fab Fours, only cheaper. And that's our battle to say, nope, old adage never dies. You do get what you pay for. And so the quality on time became something that it was a pitch at first and you say it over and over and you beat that drum thousands and thousands of times. You want it to where your customers can then say that to the end user out of their words. Why Fab Fours? Why would I pay that? You know, this one's like $700 less. It's better quality. It's not going to rust. It's going to fit right the first time. So kind of our focus on business first, fun later, that's a lot different when you're in an enthusiast industry. A lot of times it's fun first, business later. And that has given us a huge advantage throughout the years. So don't get me wrong, we let our hair down, we build some cool trucks, we go to awesome events. But when we come back to do work, we're as innovative in how we get our parts to market, manage our brand, manage our distribution, as we are in the products themselves. So what exactly is innovative about Greg's design and where does he draw inspiration from? A lifetime of being an enthusiast and the willingness to gamble on his own ideas. And I think being just a junkie for tires and wheels, I studied all of them in the magazines. I could name you the different wheel styles. And I promise you, we go back and look at the ones I like, they probably were the more fringe styles. And from the innovating of bumper parts, that's hold true to this day. You know, it's one of those things when you start out with, hey, I'm gonna try this, this is a crazy idea. And then it worked. You know, that's that positive reaffirmation, like, okay, that's cool, I guess people out there are smelling what I'm cooking. You try another one, pushing the boundaries a little bit further, wow, that worked too. Well, we've stacked about 50 of those now to where I can just firmly say, if I dream up something and go, this would be awesome. A lot of the folks on my team are like, okay, you see, out of your mind. 
Even our distribution customers and the jobbers can say the same thing like, okay, that is not for me, because they're enthusiasts too. But your track record's proven itself, we're in. And so our ability to now go from bar napkin to some crazy bold new innovation that nobody's ever said they wanted has been streamlined and it has a good track record behind it. As Greg said, he had proved himself as a designer and innovator. He stacked successful idea on successful idea. He had built trust with his customers and distributors. But when it came time to scale the business, that presented its own set of challenges. This podcast is part of Scribble, South Carolina's voice of innovation. We celebrate and support the innovative activity across the state by connecting people to people. Visit ScribbleSC.com for exclusive interviews, tools, and resources. That's ScribbleSC.com. You know, I remember the first month that we could produce or we sold $100,000 because I was going to give 100 bucks to whoever closed the last sale. And funny enough, it came in through a fax. And so I taped that $100 bill to the fax machine and we still have it in the trophy room in here. Now we do more than $100,000 a day. So that scale over the time has brought huge challenges. My interviewer here mentioned meeting with Rough Country Suspensions. Oddly, early on, you know, they also sold other people's brands and I had called on them and I couldn't tell you his name that was running the place at the time, but I was sitting in his office and even then I still had a lot of self-confidence as I do now. So when I was explaining Fab Fours and how we were gonna be different and how we were gonna take over the industry, I remember him saying, it's harder than you think and good luck with that. Which I had to peel apart, like wait, why would you say that? Because I was already kind of doing my offensive smack talk, like everything you buy shows up late, the bolts don't fit, it's got a grainy installation manual, which is true. I remember that conversation, not a month goes by where I don't, because as we scaled, I'd open up a part and I'd see a grainy manual and be like, he was right, you know. We prided ourselves on that manual. How did our manual quality slip to this level? Or getting a customer service call where a Dodge bumper showed up with Ford brackets. Like, really? That is worst case scenario. And it has an evil twin somewhere. There's a Ford bumper with Dodge brackets that somebody's gonna open. How could that happen? He was right. And it is, it's hard to scale because a lot of the, the early on, I mean, I used to wrap bumpers myself when we moved here. That was year four and we were out there wrapping bumpers. You've got that hands-on passion for, I put it in, I know our customer's gonna open it. Well, how do you scale it beyond the early entrepreneur and that core team? I wish I had the answer to help. I'm really just expressing the problem so that you know you don't ever get out of that. And the best you can do is just keep that focus on what are the things that have the most return for that effort? What are the things that your customer most cares about? And sink your teeth into those. Because if you can build some solid process and procedure around those, you'll find that the trickle effect off of them is probably gonna get you through. Sometimes we're all still looking for the answer to these common problems, like scaling, hiring, and funding. What we can learn from, though, is our mistakes. A mistake I made when we were kind of in that middle ground. We had achieved good success, we were making good money, but now what? Like scaling this was getting hard. And I wanted to bring in a president. So I hired a guy from Brytex Child Safety, a 
$50 million company and this guy ran the SNOP side. And you're like, what do I know compared to this guy? You know, he's got it in spades off this resume and these skills. But the fit wasn't right from the culture and understanding how to interact with what we have. So I found there, and that's a lesson that anyone can take without having to learn it themselves. There is no trade-off between resume and skills compared to just that individual character and work ethic. You know, because basically, same thing. Like why in the military, you know, they're not fighting for the policy, they're fighting for the guy or gal next to them. And same thing in business. You're not fighting for Greg Higgs' retirement. You're fighting for the people that are here. And honestly, sometimes the bigger and the stronger the resume, in many ways, the worse the person when you're trying to translate that to a small business. You know, I've done it through like five different plant managers. I hired a Wiley guy that ran a $35 million plant, total fail culture. I went the other way, hired a older gentleman, calm, and was running an $80 million locomotive place. Complete cultural disaster. Then I was like, I'll try an Army Ranger. Here's a guy that's just full of energy and amazing guy. Could do any other job great, but running the plant's not the strength. Who's our plant manager? Homegrown. Guy that started here, coping tube. And he just exhibited leadership skills and attention to detail, a cleanliness, and a passion for our brand. You fast forward, now 100 people report to him. You can't get that off a resume. You get it from just believing in what the business is about and the people that work for and around you. So how did Greg craft such a strong, well-embedded culture at Fab Fours? He uses a common approach, but he puts a unique spin on it. Ours here, we go with pirates. So I like the idea that we are trying to steal business and then we share the booty. So I've done a profit share every quarter since the inception, down to the last person in the business. That's saying, hey, we, all, we win, we all win. We lose, I guess just I lose, because I don't claw it back. But we've always been growing and making money in that. So that type of mentality and culture, when we end a meeting, I'll always say, so I got 130 people now. We have a pizza party. I'll give a little rebel rousing speech. We always end it with one, two, three, ah, and everybody yells kind of for that pirate theme. So some of those things help drive the camaraderie and a sense of, yeah, if I don't weld this seam properly, I'm passing that problem to the next guy. That's a culture problem. We want everyone joined up trying to win the day. Arr. Is <laughs> that our new, uh, like, we're ready? Yeah, Great. that's our new thing. Okay. It's uh, it's nice to hear that Greg, as he's, as he's scaled his business, that he's really recognized the true value is in his people. And, you know, even though he had a lot of failures of trying to find to fill those right positions, talent is a constant pain point no matter what business you're in. Finding the right people you know, to build with, is, it's just hard. And so it's it's nice to hear that they actually realized they already had that talent within and were able to promote it uh, with somebody that was sitting right there um, with them. Um, but this is something I actually, we try to really encourage companies to consider, especially that are scaling. You know, one of the, uh, another 
pain point is they, they kind of hit these inflection points where um, they can't afford the talent that they want. They don't mm-hmm. have the cash flow for it yet, but yet they need that talent to keep growing. And so how do you how do you fix that dichotomy? And, you know, I know a lot of people kind of look at interns as like cheap labor or not capable or, you know, too much to manage, just that and the other. And actually, there are some great examples. Actually, a company I had the pleasure of meeting in its early days, a company called T-Cube Solutions. Uh, I remember this, again, during my, my incubator days, I showed them the first couple offices. Um, and they were, again, at the same point where they needed certain talent. And um, I kind of talked them into, you know, have we ever really considered like a, a real intern kind of apprenticeship kind of program? I feel like they could do this this work with management, but, you know, this would require your leadership team to take on a mentor style. You, know, you can't just turn them loose. They're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And you need to have those buffers and those processes in place to address it. But, you know, kind of, I think, I think this would work and that they'd actually you know, would p- possibly stay with you afterwards if you have openings. And sure enough, um, they had at some point 40 interns, I think. I physically even had to move my office a few <laughs> times because they wanted to try and keep everyone on the same floor. I mean, they just they grew so fast. Um but in fact, to this day, you know, eventually T-Cube Solutions grew so large, they were no longer, they needed to move out of the building. Uh, this is where more classic economic development came in, and they actually moved into um, a new facility at, at Bull Street. Um, but their two first, uh, especially their first inter- intern, um, is now still in Columbia. He works for a company called Cognito Forms. Um, and the second one I still stay in contact with. He's actually now building his own IT insurance company uh, right there as well. So it's it's a good example of, you know, talent coming in, getting that experience, and now it's actually being uh, recirculated back into the community, the tech community, and off on their own endeavors. Yeah, I, I, I and, and as we've heard repeatedly from all of these interviews, everybody, you know, it's communication and then it's talent, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the essential ingredient for for any business to succeed. Um, I love the idea of, uh, you're sort of saying, using an internship and recruiting talent in almost as a way to start... Uh, it's your a, own pipeline. Yeah, it's a pipeline to feed them in to later stages in the company. And, and um, you know, I think with Greg, he... Um, his his story about trying to figure it out, ultimately ending up with someone who uh, was from his own uh, um, his his own workforce is is actually pretty normal, right? It's a it's a pretty typical thing that you hear because because you've you've got in your in your current staff, you know who your top performers are, yeah. And I mean, if you take a step back and you sort of just abstractly look at, well, why are they performing well? What are the characteristics? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Um, you can pretty well get a nice snapshot then of of who who else to recruit or to try to attract to your company. Um, I think that the hardest for, for me often is when you know you've got to find someone who is different from uh, you know who you know. So you've got to hire in expertise that you don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always found that to be very hard because you want to maintain your culture, but you also realize that you also have to be open to um, changes or differences in, in culture, or if you're trying to bring on something new, um, you've got to just be open to the fact that there may be uh, an evolution of your culture, which is very tough. Yeah, in fact, I mean, T-Cube Solutions experienced that. They eventually were acquired by a, cap, a company called Capgemini. Um, and so that's what I mean. Like these these two original interns, I mean, they stayed on through the acquisition. That's how long they stayed with them. And now it's like, yeah, big, big corporate's not right. really quite 
their spot. They liked being a part of a much smaller entity. Right. And now, but like I said, there was a place for them to now go. They, they were they were picked up by other technology. One's building his own technology, and the other one joined another technology company right there in Columbia. Right. How would I define innovation? We are the ones trying to say, we're looking around the corner, you know, pairing it to like Steve Jobs. I'm trying to invent parts people don't know they want. That's bold and risky. There's a lot of R&D money tied up into trying to bring an idea to life, not knowing that there's a market for it, just believing that there should be. But people shouldn't take it lightly, knowing the cost that there is to it. And for us, I think a lot of what drives that innovation is the, the passion to just believe in it ourselves. If you want to be innovative, it's got to come from your heart. You've got to believe in it. Greg's commitment to his ideas, beliefs, and approach play a huge part in his greater ambitions. I was interviewed this week about where do these ideas come from and do you, Greg, feel pressure to make the next idea? And my honest answer, because I hadn't been asked it that way, was no, zero pressure. It's still just being a passionate enthusiast. You know, I tell you, one day I want to create my own vehicle from scratch. I love off-road so much. I've got this vision of creating the ultimate off-road vehicle that could take aid into remote parts of third world countries where they may need medicine or other, but they're inaccessible. That's a perfect blend of being able to take care of other people, yet take all of our experience, both in off-road and manufacturing, to build something like that. I'm not talking about something that's just utility-based. I would still have crazy flair. That's the stuff I'm thinking about in the shower or when I'm driving. As we rounded out our interview, we asked Greg what his most significant tools were, the things that help him innovate and continue to move his business forward. Somewhat expecting him to say a sketchbook or a specific source of inspiration, his response was surprising. I'm gonna have a pretty unconventional answer here, which is pretty much nothing. So I've been having an office at Fab Fours for over six years now. I just have a normal backpack that has a laptop in it that I maybe turn on twice a week. I can't even print my own documents here. It's pretty sad. So I just email something to Jennifer, she'll print it for me, we have a routine. I'm not on the server, all that is horrible because everybody else has a lot of disciplines around server use, et cetera. This is something that my father has always tipped his hat to and says, I did it in a completely different way, which was just letting go. So you could say it's letting go on one hand, you could say it's extreme trust on the other. My best tools would be my leadership team and the people, combined with my trust in them. And I'm exposed. There's a lot of risk. You know, my leadership team, need to meet with our tax attorneys this week. So they're trying to schedule around me. And my answer is like, what do I know about taxes? Have the meeting. But that's just abnormal. Like, what do you mean you don't care? It's your money. Like, yeah, but I trust you. If it was your money, what would you do with it? To be able to let go at that level that I have, to kind of keep my hands free of responsibility, it really leveraged me to be into the innovative side, the brand driving side, being the face of the business. So yeah, I, I feel like Greg is, is definitely a rare bird on a, on a lot of different angles here, but in particular with his real trust and, and real hands-off approach with a lot of his, his team, you know, especially I feel like most founders, you know, this was this was their baby. You know, this was their idea, the thing that they 
have a sweat, blood, tears all over. And, and some of them don't ever make it to the level of success that they have. And so to have this ability to just really step back and let his team you know, do their thing is impressive. And ooh, I, I don't know if I could do yeah. it. A little scary. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I you know, both reflecting on myself and others that I've met, he is rare. And it is probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest things to do, which is to um, take a take a step back and, and let other people sort of run with the dream. Um, at the same time, you know, when when he talked about this, I, I kind of felt like he he was, and I don't want to, I'm not saying that he was, but that he might be exaggerating it to some degree to make a point. The point's very valid, which is that you've got to learn to delegate or you're not going to scale. Um, but at the same time, I also get the impression that, that Greg knows where, he is useful, um, be it as a spokesperson, be it as the person who is uh, spurring or igniting ideas um, or pushing people, or at least his his top you know his top circle. Uh, I think he has learned the the big P word, which is prioritization uh, in life, and I think that that's a huge deal too. Which is to say, you know, there are a lot of important things. Um, but I know the key things that I have to focus my attention to and efforts on energy on, those are the things that are going to provide maximal value and return to me. And that's what I'm going to, where I'm going to focus. The other stuff, um, may be considered noise, even though it might be important, it's noise. And there are other people I can trust to, to handle those things. I mean, I, you know, at the same time, as I say, all of that, he's, he's, he's been, very strong on this idea that he empowers and he entrusts the people who he has hired and and maybe he is just transcend you know maybe he has found a happy spot with the notion that he is he's hired people that are better than him in certain areas and that he feels like those people will do a better job than he and if well, that's the case then great for him and i'd almost say potentially that that mastery of delegation that he seems to have is really what's helped him transition from founder to CEO. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's allowed for the business to actually scale, which is such a hard thing to just let that stuff go. Yeah. And we heard that with uh, uh, um, Jack Peck, where he talks about learning more how to run the business than how to build the software or build the, the product. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the same thing with John Michael and, from Chartspan. Yes. You know, he talks yes. about his number one priority is taking care of his people. Because if his people are doing well, then Chartspan will do well. That's too. right. And he sees them as the proxy, really the, the conduit. So um, you know, and I think of all of those people, what we see is also that just absolute focus and on customer too, yeah. um, and understanding that if he's going to or she's going to um, give every customer something they want, they're going to have to work through other people to do that. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to see this come up again. It's it's a great piece of advice for other entrepreneurs, and that wasn't all the advice he had, was it? There's a lot of fear surrounding that because you do have a lot of risk of tying up and getting off a path because a career path, a traditional one, is a lot safer in that the next steps are there. And if you work hard, you take care of people, you're gonna advance in that. When you roll the dice to be an entrepreneur, man, I mean, what do the stats say? It's really, really hard to make it. And my dad always used to tell me this, and I experienced it in my early days at Fab Fours. When you're first starting, like for those first three years, it literally feels like the entire world wants you to fail. Like your very vendors who you're relying on 
are the first ones to just bleed you dry on that. They're not helping. They're not bringing lessons learned from their other customers. They're not doing things to mentor you so that you'll grow and keep buying from them. They're just making it hard and taking. And so all these holes in the buckets form to where you need to have some help. I think having a mentor as an entrepreneur is probably one of the biggest things that you can. You know, it doesn't matter if somebody was gonna open a tent shop. I could take them under my wing and give them so much advice to just save thousands and thousands of dollars of things you don't have to experience yourself. Going back to the fact that most businesses are the same. But as a tent shop, man, that guy's gonna be working from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day and Saturday and trying to balance out with his family. Where, what mentor? And then what mentor is gonna have interest in his single tent shot that's making $60,000 a year with two employees? Bridging that gap is very tough. So that's why I'm doing this interview today. You know, maybe there's little nuggets and things like this where this is scalable. You know, this could touch a thousand entrepreneurs or would be entrepreneurs. And there may be little pieces that just make sense that anyone could cling to. I'm Greg Higgs, and those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. And I'm Laura Corder. Of Note is an original production by the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matt Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ReadySetScribble. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, keep pursuing your transformational ideas. Next time on Of Note. I, I guess I'm constantly innovating. I don't even think about it. I mean, most women putting on their makeup probably reinvent themselves, you know, six times over in a year. And, and so I would say we're all innovators. You just have to find the ways that you are innovative and utilize that purpose in a different way. I mean, every time I open my, my refrigerator to figure out what I'm going to make for dinner, it, that's an innovation process. Because, you know, when you have a jar of capers, three mushrooms, you know, and you know, mysterious items that are hopefully not taking a life <laughs> of its own. Um, you have to figure out what to do with all of that, you know, or call for takeout. <laughs>